So I just want to start by saying how really wonderful it is to be here this week and be practicing with all of you and with this wonderful team of friends and teachers who we've all been practicing together for so long and learning from each other and Janice and I have been raising our children together. It's such a wonderful family feeling, a real feeling of sangha. And I'm also feeling such a sense of connection and sangha with all of you as we're here practicing these threads of the yogic tradition that we all share and love and weaving them together. I really feel the support and the sincerity of your practice as we're all on this journey together. This evening after dinner, I went for a hike up to the top of the hill, right up over here, and the wind was blowing really hard. And I stood at the top of the hill and I took off my shoes so I could really feel my feet on the earth and feeling that earth element and the wind blowing and the fire of the setting sun. I was just filled with such gratitude. And I was thinking of something a friend of mine said recently. He's a wonderful travel writer named Jeff Greenwald. And he spent most of his life, his adult life, traveling around the world and writing stories about it. And he said recently that if there were a travel guide to the universe with descriptions of all of the different planets, beings from all over the universe would be lining up, saving their money to get tickets to come here and see all the amazing life forms and creatures and things that we have. It's really quite extraordinary. And he said, and we get to live here all the time. So we're not just on vacation here, as you might have noticed. So I was thinking about that, and then I was also reflecting on something my son Skye said about four or five years ago when he was seven. And it was a beautiful spring day just like this, and we walked out of the house in the morning. And I said, Skye, isn't it a wonderful day? Isn't it beautiful? And he gave this big smile, and he said, yes, it is beautiful. And then he paused and said, but of course, the sun could have already exploded and we wouldn't know it for another eight minutes. <laughs> because, of course, for those of you who aren't up on your science facts, it takes eight minutes for the light from the sun to travel to here. So I laugh when I, when I say that, but it's also pointing to something really true, which is this incredible uncertainty that we live within. We live in the midst of all of this beauty and amazement and wonder. And as Howie said the other night, we have no idea what's going to happen next. And yes, the sun could already have exploded. And yes, everything that we're counting on could disappear just like that. And how do we live in the midst of that uncertainty? How do we live in the midst of all of this beauty and all of this fragility and all of this pain and loss and joy and the knowledge of the inevitability of death? How do we live with all of this without grabbing on, clinging, grasping, or shutting down, freezing, getting rigid, refusing to open our hearts? How do we live in a way that's alive and present and vibrant and connected and completely in tune with the fact of impermanence? And so that's really the art that we're practicing here. That's really what we're cultivating and studying. And these forms that we're using, the forms of the yoga and the meditation, are just the forms. They're just the ways we get at that. And it's that aliveness, that connection, that uh, openness that's really what we're practicing. And so what I'm going to talk about this evening is how these forms, these particular forms that we're using to cultivate that, that aliveness, that awake quality, how they work together. How the asana and the pranayama that we've been practicing from the hatha yoga tradition supports this awakening in conjunction with the practice of mindfulness, the sitting practice, the walking practice, 
How do these different forms go together on a really practical level? And how do they help us work with the conditioning and the patterns of the mind and the heart and the body that keep us from that kind of aliveness and connection? And so I thought I would begin by just telling you a little bit about my own story and my own journey on this path. I began this practice when I was about 19, and I was in college on the East Coast, and I was in the midst of a profound quest for a class that didn't meet too early in the morning. (laughs) I was a, a sophomore, and I was staying up late at night doing various sophomoric things, and I just couldn't face a nine o'clock class. And so I was flipping through the student course guide and I saw this class that got rave reviews and um, it met at 11 o'clock and it was called The Self and World Religions. And so I said, okay, I'll take that. That's what I can do on a Monday morning. So I walked into this first class, kind of bleary-eyed, but awake, and it just blew my mind because the class was all about this fundamental question of who am I really and how do I live in this world? And I was particularly blown away by the teachings from the Hindu, yogic, and Buddhist traditions. And I still have in my notes from that time a couple of the quotes that just hooked me in. Um, This was a quote from the Upanishads. There is a spirit which is mind and life, light and truth and vast spaces. It contains all works and desires and all perfumes and all tastes. It enfolds the whole universe and in silence is loving to all. This is the spirit that is in my heart, smaller than a grain of rice or a grain of barley or a grain of mustard seed or a grain of canary seed or the kernel of a grain of canary seed. This is the spirit that is in my heart, greater than the earth, greater than the sky, greater than heaven itself, greater than all these worlds. This is the spirit that is in my heart. It's the Upanishads. And then another quote that I wrote down, this was from the Buddha. The world is on fire, and are you laughing? You are deep in the dark, will you not ask for light? Behold your body, a painted puppet, a toy, a shadow that shifts and fades. Are you laughing? So this was great. I loved it. This is what I wanted to know. I immediately switched my major from uh, creative writing to religion and began taking classes on Hinduism and Buddhism because I figured this was the way to contact this. But somewhat to my disappointment, being a religion major mainly entailed sitting in the library um, studying for exams on things like the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path and the Bhagavad Gita and reading lots and lots of books that said, this can't be found in books. So after a year or so of this, I decided to believe the books that said that and I went out that summer to the Zen Center of Los Angeles, the summer after my junior year in college, and decided to really learn to meditate. And again, the theory, the teachings were wonderful and inspiring. I loved the philosophy. I didn't have a clue what I was doing when I was meditating. They kept talking about watching the breath and it was something I kind of watched from a great distance, you know, like binoculars like whale spotting or something. Every now and then I would see a breath. And most of the time, I just sat there and thought about stuff. You know, I wasn't, you know, I had, my body was young. I was pretty comfortable. I could just sit there and think. And I'd think and think and think. And every now and then spot a breath. Um, I, uh, I liked the Dharma talks, so that was great. But really the meditation wasn't getting, you know, it wasn't an experience for me. But I kept doing it, and I kept going to the talks. And then a year or so later, when I was living in New Mexico, uh, my roommates were all students at a massage school, which was great because they practiced on me all the time. 
and a student at the massage school was offering a free yoga class. And what I really wanted was to get rolfed, but I couldn't afford to get rolfed, so I went to this free yoga class. And immediately, in that first class, we were breathing, we were flowing, we were moving, and it suddenly hit me, oh, the breath isn't an idea, it's a feeling. I felt it in my body. I could feel myself living inside my breath as sensation. I'd never felt anything like that before. And suddenly something clicked into place. And this was my doorway into meditation, through the body, through the movement, through the felt, lived sensation of the breath. And so from that point on, I began practicing these paths together. And uh, I really needed the yoga. I really couldn't have found my way into meditation without it. And as I found my way in, um, the two practices, as you know, as you experienced this week, flowed together. And um, the meditation, the sitting practice deepened the asana, the asana deepened the sitting. And I found that the embodied movements of the, of the yoga practice began to, it was like they were breaking up cement in my body, not just physical cement, but emotional cement, congealed patterns, old pains, memories. You know this story. You felt it yourself, the release, the bubbling forth of material. And these patterns through the movement, through the breathing, began to shift. And then the sitting practice was a way of going more deeply, really being with what shifted, what moved, because I quickly found I couldn't just do it with the yoga. I mean, we like to think sometimes that if we just do the postures enough, everything will work out, you know, sudden enlightenment. And that may be true for some people. It was not true for me. Uh, I needed the depth, the stillness, the examination of the patterns in the stillness, and I needed the movement, the flow, to keep it... uh, to keep these patterns from um, hardening. And so as we work with the body in this way, as I'm sure you've experienced, we begin to break up um, patterns of mind and heart. We begin to loosen patterns of mind and heart. And it's not an accident that this is happening. This is actually what the postures, the breathing, the yoga practices were designed to do. Because in the yogic worldview, the body and the mind and the heart, the spirit, are not separate entities. It's not like our mind is inside our body, kind of controlling it like the driver of a car. They're different aspects of the same interpenetrating continuum. They're different layers of our being which are intimately connected and they're like different manifestations, um, different vibrations, different, uh, different uh, wavelengths on the spectrum of one continuous uh, being, manifestation. And so when we work on any one of these layers, we affect all of the rest. There's the physical body, the, uh, the uh, uh, anamaya kosha, it's called in the yoga terms. The koshas are like sheaths or layers. There's the energy body, pranamaya kosha. There's the body of our emotions and thoughts, the uh, manamaya kosha. There's the wisdom body, vijnanamaya kosha. There's the body of awakening, insight, anandamaya kosha. You don't need to remember all of these. I'm just throwing them out to, uh, I don't know, juice up the talk a little bit or something. Uh, make it sound like I know something. Um, see, you got some Sanskrit. You're, you're actually getting something. But you know, you know this from your own experience. You know this interpenetrating, multidimensional nature of your being. And it's very obvious to see this interconnectedness. We see it when, you know, we're nervous, we have a big presentation, we're feeling kind of scared, and our heart starts to beat fast. Or uh, 
we're lying awake at night spinning all the amazing things that we're going to do and we can't fall asleep because we're thinking about, you know, the things we're going to paint and write and, you know, projects we're going to carry out. And then we realize it's because we had a big piece of chocolate cake and it isn't that we have these, these ideas are necessarily so amazing that's keeping us awake, it's because we ate some caffeine and that's brightening our mind. So we feel this on a very practical, immediate level. And we feel it both in the short term, the way immediate experiences, you know, you have a big fight with someone, you feel nauseous, you're stressed out, you get a massage, you feel great. But also these ancient, ancient conditionings that come, go f- back to our childhood or before our childhood that are passed down from our parents, the patterns of constriction, our own particular way of shutting down, that's hardened into our body and that we can gradually work with and create a little more space around. Not to fix ourselves or improve ourselves, but to create more space for awakening, for insight to arise. We can address these deep-seated grooves and that permeate through all of these levels of our being. And so the asanas that we work with in the yoga practice, the asana pranayama, are very sophisticated methods worked out over centuries for working with certain layers of our being to affect the other layers, working primarily with the physical body and the energetic body to affect the mind and heart. And they're very precisely calibrated. Uh, They work in very uh, precise and powerful ways. And you've experienced some of that this week, the ways that they can support the process of opening calming, settling the mind and heart through working directly on the physical and energetic layers that are connected with the mind and heart. And so what I'm going to talk about this evening is particularly some of the classic obstacles to our awakening, some of the classic ways that we either grip or contract or pull away or grab on and how I mentioned some of them, um, actually I think he ran through all of them in the guided meditation this morning. Uh, the, the classic patterns of um, avoidance, you might say, that keep us from that kind of awake sensitivity. And I'm going to talk about how in our asana practice in particular, asana pranayama practice, our yoga practice, we can work with some of these hindrances, they're called. They're classically known as the five hindrances. Now, when we hear that term, or at least when I hear that term of the five hindrances, I immediately think, oh, this means it's something that's an obstacle that should be gotten rid of. You know, I have this road that I'm driving down toward awakening, and there are these kind of roadblocks along the way, and I've got to clear them out of the way. But actually, if we investigate a little more, it's not quite like that because these, um, these patterns, how to put this, it's something we have to go through. We don't just clear them out and it's all clear sailing. And if we didn't have them, we would have just made a straight beeline for enlightenment. Um, I don't know anyone who I think of as really wise and really compassionate and really awake and present, who hasn't wrestled with and confronted and come to terms with and gotten intimate with their own anger or craving or fear, their own grasping. That's how they got that way. That's that's where the, uh, the moments of insight came from. And I know in my own life, the biggest awakenings and letting goes and heart openings that I've had have come through this direct interaction with these things that I just really wished would go away. You know, I really wished they weren't even there. And yet it was by learning to be with them that some kind of opening began to occur. And so... In a way, rather than thinking of these as the five hindrances, I like to think of them as the five opportunities. They're like big masses of congealed power 
Um, in fact, in traditions, uh, in some Buddhist traditions, they're really consciously worked with in that way as, as just energy that can be transformed and transformed into something useful. So the first one of these classic opportunities, uh, how we spoke of this morning, it's, uh, is that energy of wanting, of grasping, of clinging, it's often translated as um, sensual desire, which for me, when I hear that translation, it just makes me bristle a little bit. Uh, it kind of brings back memories of my Catholic, um, Catholic school and the bad things that would happen to you if you thought about certain body parts or, you know, the, uh, you know sensual desire, bad. Uh, so it's important to realize that that's not... That's not what we're talking about here. Um, we're not saying, the teachings aren't saying not to enjoy the pleasant things of the world, not to enjoy you know, connections with friends and delicious tastes and beautiful sights. In fact, you've probably experienced from your own practice that those things through meditation often get intensified and heightened. And particularly the yoga tradition, the asana pranayama tradition, it's a very sensuous tradition in the best sense of that word. Um, it's a, it comes from the tantric tradition where the world and the senses are vehicles for awakening. And so again, not something to be gotten rid of. Um, there's a quote I want to read to you. Ah, let's see. This is from a Buddhist, um, Buddhist tantric text. To renounce the sense objects is to torture oneself by asceticism. Don't do it. When you see form, look. Similarly, listen to sounds, inhale scents, taste delicious flavors, feel textures. Use the objects of the five senses. You will quickly attain supreme Buddhahood. So it's not about not feeling or not connecting with or not enjoying. What, what, this, uh, what this opportunity is giving us a chance to look at is where are we stuck and clinging and sticky around that? Where are we hooked around our senses, and the mind is one of the senses in Buddhism. So where are we hooked in that wanting, that think, feeling that I can't be happy unless, unless I get more, unless I have this, um, that sense of postponing happiness, um, and that wanting, that clinging, that sticky feeling. That's the hook that we're being asked to look at. And it's a really natural human impulse. I mean, Again, this isn't something bad. It's something that arises in all of us naturally at a very young age. Uh, I remember when my son Sky was about two, and he was having his first popsicle. I had been kind of not very generous with the sugar in the first years of his life, and he was having this popsicle, and he thought this was really great. And he was sucking on this popsicle, and about halfway through, he looked up and said very brightly, and when this one is done, I'll have another one. <laughs> and... Uh, I was a new mom and kind of clueless, and so rather than just you know, nodding and waiting to see what happened, I immediately said, oh no, honey, you know, one's going to be enough. Whereupon he began to weep and wail, clinging to the popsicle in his hand, saying, I want another one, I want another one. After this one's done, I want another one. So uh, it's a familiar feeling. Do you know that feeling? I mean, I've been sitting on meditation retreats, planning my next meditation retreat, you know, <laughs> feeling an eating meditation of just, I can't wait to swallow this bite so I can have more, you know, seconds. So, so that's what we're being asked to look at in, in our practice. Uh, where does that yearning live? And, you know, the world is constantly dangling in front of us, these opportunities for more, 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 alluring us with this idea that if we get more, we'll be happy. Uh, do you know, one of the places I study this is on airplanes, those Sky Mall magazines that you'll pick up on an airplane. 
full of all these things. You're trapped. You're at 30,000 feet. You finished your book and you're looking all these things you didn't know you might want, but suddenly, you know, like a, uh, my last trip, I saw a remote control um, uh, cooler. So you could be sitting and watching TV and press the button and your cooler would... <laughs> so you didn't have to get up to get your drink while you were watching your television. Or there was a, a, a set of DVDs that you could leave with your animals when you left the house, your dogs and your cats, in case they were lonely. There was one for the dogs of someone throwing a ball and chasing it. And, you know, one for the cats of little mice running around. And, I mean, who knew you needed this? But someone must order them right there on the spot. You know, and even our yoga practice, we can go into the yoga studio and... We're walking through, as a friend of mine said, you sometimes have to hack your way through a thicket of merchandise to get to your class. And, you know, I'm walking through and, ooh, a Himalayan salt lamp. Yes, I, I need some great, great ohm necklaces and things. So how do we work with this in our, in our yoga practice? What are the tools? You know, in, in particular, we've been offered many tools over the course of this retreat, but in particular from the yogic tradition, what's the tool what are the tools for working and noticing this, this turning outward, this looking? Well, of course, one tool is just, as you know, you feel where it lives in your body. And this applies for all of these hindrances. Where does this sticky feeling live in my body? Where can I feel that, you know, is it in the eyes? Is it in the jaw? Is it in the throat? Noticing the feeling that goes along with that of like, got to have got to have. Or the feeling often is not enough. Where do I I feel? I don't have enough. I want more. I want something else. So to really get familiar with that as a felt sense in the body, as in your practice, as you're practicing, and also training up the sensitivity in your body-based practices so that when you're out in the world, or, you know, as Howie said, when you're at the security gate, you're you're there, you can find it, that... (gasps) that wanting, and you can find it in your body and and know how to loosen it a little bit just on the physical level. Sometimes just loosening the gripping in the body can help release that in the mind. Oh, I don't really need that. don't need that so much. Another powerful tool from this tradition is the the concept of, uh, or the technique of pratyahara, sense withdrawal, sense controlling of the senses, uh, cultivating of a, a relationship with the senses that's more free, that's more about choice. And pratyahara is the drawing inward of the senses from the outside world. And again, we do that physically in the practice, and the physical gesture of it helps us with the emotional release. It doesn't do it all. You know, the, these aren't magic bullets, unfortunately. I, I hoped for a long time that they were, that I could just do it with the body. But, but they are tremendous supports. So that sense of turning the sense doors inward, and we often work with the gaze in yoga, turning the gaze down, turning the eye inward. Janice was practicing the other day with turning the eyes toward the heart, looking into the heart, feeling. We often close off the senses in our yoga practice. So there are practices where we put um, eye bags over the eyes or we wrap a bandage around the eyes and the ears, literally closing down the senses uh, so that we can look more inward and find that sense of satisfaction of wholeness that rises from within. Uh, We can also, without using those physical props, we work a lot with softening the gates of the senses. And you'll notice we've instructed a lot in our yoga practice this week around that. We'll have you soften the root of the tongue, soften the inner ear, soften the backs of the eyes. It's that way of consciously turning the senses, having some sense of choice around where our senses go and some sense of choice and freedom in our relationship with this turning outward, this grasping. And the beautiful gift of this, of working with this in this way in the body and of really becoming intimate with that energy of of grasping 
is that it can ripen that grasping energy into a real sense of appreciation, you know, a real sense of appreciation for what's here without clinging on, without grabbing on to it. And that can be a gift that can be nourishing to us and also to the people around us who will really appreciate our, our turning inward for a while to nourish ourselves, turning our senses inward. The next of these classic hindrances or obstacles, how I also mentioned, which is the aversion, the pushing away. I don't like it. I don't want it. Uh, something is happening. I want it to go away. And again, you've probably experienced a fair amount of that this week. You know, I don't like this. I don't like that. And it can show up in our yoga practice. You know, I don't like these long yin poses. <laughs> They're uncomfortable. I thought this was the morning dynamic practice and it's turning out to be something else. I want restorative. Why are we moving so much in the restorative? You know, that aversion, I don't like. Um, You'll find it in in your own practice. I don't like this this pose. I don't like this posture. I don't like my body. You know, that can also link with the wanting. I really want that person's hamstrings. No, not mine. Um, one teacher of mine said to me once, you have to realize if you, you can't just take their hamstrings, you'd have to take their whole life. <laughs> that will put it in perspective. But that sense of aversion, not liking, pushing away, And sometimes it's not even what shows up about the practice, but it's something underlying. There can be kind of a negativity, I don't want, I don't like, that's actually fueling our whole practice. That's actually our motivation. And when we start paying attention, we can see this drive, I want to make things different. It's not good how it is. And that can be something that can be really fueling and and propelling our practice. So in the asana practice, we can begin to look at that, study that in the laboratory of our bodies. And here again, I'll just talk a little about the tools that are specific to the yoga practice around this. One is this ability that we cultivate in the yoga practice to turn toward what's difficult. In our bodies, we train up this ability to turn toward, to get interested in. And Janice was guiding you in that in the yin practice this morning. An ache in the hip, a pain, rather than move, shift, get out of it, can I turn toward, can I turn, train up this ability to stay with, to keep coming back to, to feel into what's actually happening. We can also train up this capacity for metta and loving kindness, meeting what's there with a kind of kindness and interest. Uh, The body metta that how he did at the 2.30 sit, was a lot about that, meeting the difficult with kindness. And we can train that up in our bodies, again, so that it becomes not just a concept, but a felt sense, something that we can then come back to when difficult situations arise in our life. We've really learned to see what jewels are there. We've really learned to to move into with interest and softness and kindness to see what's there. This is a poem by David White called The Well of Grief. He says, Those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down to its black water, to the place that we cannot breathe, will never know the source from which we drink, the secret water, cold and clear, nor find, nor find in the darkness the small gold coins thrown by those who wished for something else. So that sense of the, the riches, the coins, the gifts that live in our difficult moments and that capacity to turn toward them can begin to transform that energy of aversion into um, compassion for ourselves, for others, you know, for the hard places that we all meet 
and just knowing that this is part of our human life and that this art of opening to these places rather than going with the impulse to move away can really serve us profoundly. The next one of these classic hindrances or opportunities. I love this. I love these words, sloth and torpor. You don't say those words a lot in your life, you know. Out in the world, people say, how are you feeling? Oh, a lot of sloth and torpor, you know. (laughs) But we know the feeling. And again, it's a very common uh, obstacle to our meditation practice, to our awakening, very common opportunity to work skillfully with ourselves. And so again, just in the yoga practice, now there's that basic knowing what it feels like in the body. And then there's the skillful means of balancing it, of bringing about, as Howie said, that balance between tranquility and energy. Sloth and torpor is a tranquility overload. And so really going in and sensing, what is the skillful way of working with this? Uh, often what we're calling sloth and torpor is actually just deep exhaustion. And that's often the case when we come on retreat, but also in our lives. When we kind of go in and feel in the body, it's, oh, our lives are really busy, really draining, and I'm really tired. I'm just really depleted. And so when that's the case, that deep exhaustion, one of the skillful ways of working with that in our yoga practice is the nourishing restorative poses the long holds that we've been doing this week and these supported poses that really feed, kind of build up our prana supply again, really replenish our well of chi, of prana, of life force. And to really feed that part of you, feed that energy for as long as it takes to kind of bring your energy up again. Sometimes it's not deep exhaustion, but it's more that sluggish, stagnant, kind of stuck energy feeling. You know that you're tired, you're sleepy, you're not really interested in anything. You know, you've slept a bunch and you're still still sluggish. And in that case, what we can often do in our yoga practice are what are called um, the uh, brahmana practices, the energizing practices, the practices which heat and uh, raise the energy in the body. And we've been working with those this week. They're the the, um, emphasis on the inhalation. Um, We have been doing the three-part inhalation, the pause after the inhalation, moving with the inhalations, uh, backbends, more dynamic, vigorous kinds of movements to really brighten up the energy and bring more energy to balance out the tranquility. But in doing that, we need to meet ourselves where we are You know, I know if my son is kind of lazing around like, oh, mom, I don't want to go take a walk. It doesn't help to go, yes, we're going to go on a five-mile hike. Here, grab your coat. Let's go. (laughs) But if I say, hey, let's just take a little walk down the street and back. You know, so if you're in that sluggish kind of space, maybe move more slowly, more gently. Meet your energy where it is. But Janice has done this very skillfully this week, working with the inhalation from in the slowness, in the stillness, to begin to build and brighten. And then you can move into more dynamic, more vigorous movements, kind of bringing yourself along, coaxing yourself along, brightening yourself. And as we brighten our sluggishness, we begin to find that gift in it, which again is that tranquility, is that sense of ease, that sense of peace, that sense of uh, being able to rest. The next of these, these obstacles is the obstacle of uh, restlessness. And we also know that one. Busy mind, busy body, energy systems revved up. Um, this is a very common one when we're out in the world. It can then crash into sloth and torpor. You know, it seems like we can go from one extreme to the other and not find that middle ground. So uh, 
that constant overstimulated, you know, I'm checking my email and texting and eating lunch at the same time and, you know, the phone's ringing and, you know, talking on the phone and reading your email at the same time. Uh, it's amazing what we can kind of coordinate, you know, instant messaging and, you know, the Facebook and... So how do we balance that, again, in our bodies, in our nervous systems? What are some of the skills for that from the yoga tradition. Well, here we're using um, what are called the lagana, langana practices, the stilling, the grounding, calming practices. And we've explored those this week as well. Forward bends, shoulder stands, long holds, emphasis on the exhalation and the pause after the exhalation breaking up that exhale so that we really lengthen out that breath. One thing they've learned in scientific studies is that with every inhalation, our heart rate slightly increases. Every exhalation, the heart rate slightly decreases. There's this constant pulsation going on. So by lengthening the exhalation, giving more time for that heart rate to slow down, blood pressure drop, Everything kind of cool. These are cooling practices. But again, we have to meet ourselves where we are. You know, if we're really buzzed and moving like that, it can just be really annoying to be told to stop. You know, I don't know if you've had that experience of your lily buzzed and excited. Someone looks at you and says, now just calm down. (laughs) You don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Maybe you do. So that sense of meeting yourself in that energy and again, within the strong dynamic poses, you can emphasize the exhale. I did some of that this morning with the moving into downward dog on the pause after the exhalation. A strong pose, the exhale emphasized so that the nervous system calms and cools and settles, brings about more balance. And again, not as an end in itself. None of these practices, it's not about fixing what's wrong. We have so many tools in the yogic toolkit that we can think that's what it's about. I'm just going to fiddle with my recipe, you know, till it's exactly perfect and then it's going to stay like that forever. I just get the right blend of back bends, forward bends. But it's more about working skillfully with the energy to, to set up the environment that's conducive for deeper exploration for going to the deeper um, levels and for creating the conditions that are conducive to this quality of awake presence that we're cultivating. So it's almost like, you know, we're coming into the meditation hall and the wind is, the window is open and there's wind, cold wind blowing through. And just before we sit down, we're like, all right, I'm going to shut the window a little bit and, you know, maybe pick up the papers that are blown all over and, creating a space in which now I can go and do the deeper work. So we can set up these conditions in the nervous system and then do the deeper work of exploration. And the final one of these obstacles, classic obstacles or opportunities, is doubt. I remember I was teaching on a... One of the very first one of these yoga and meditation retreats that we did, and somebody left on the second day. She had been thinking she was coming on a yoga vacation, and realized quickly that it wasn't. And uh, she left. She took her suitcase, and I saw her as I was, she was rolling down. She stopped to talk to me, rolling her suitcase down the hill. And she said, "I can't believe I came here when I could have gone to a spa in Napa." <laughs> so. <laughs> You might have had that thought yourself. <laughs> Maybe next time. But that questioning, that is what I'm doing the right thing? You know, is, is this right at all? You know, and these doubts can arise particularly when we're hitting a plateau in our practice. You know how when you first started your yoga practice, every day was this fresh revelation and you just couldn't believe how great you were feeling and everything was changing and your body was changing and your mind was changing and, you know, you got a new boyfriend and, you know, whatever. Everything was looking good. And, uh, 
And then it kind of stopped happening quite so fast. And maybe you got a little bored or you got injured. And, you know, what is this? Is this the right path? Is it leading me somewhere? Or maybe we're feeling a little disillusioned. Maybe we put all of our faith in a particular teacher or a particular method. And then that teacher screwed up really publicly. And we feel, you know, bad. And and like maybe the whole practice, maybe there's something wrong with the whole practice. And over my years of practice, you know, I've seen this disillusionment in so many different communities and paths um, that it almost starts to seem like part of the path. Oh, letting go of that, that putting our faith in, you know, a particular form or a particular teacher being the answer. And so how do we work with that when, when we're disillusioned in that way? Well, one of the things the tradition says is that we don't suppress our doubt. That doubt, I mean, again, we can call it an obstacle, but it's also an essential element of the path. In Zen, they talk about great doubt. There's a quote from the Zen teacher, Hakuin. He said, At the bottom of great doubt lies great awakening. If you doubt fully, you will awaken fully. This is from the Christian theologian, Paul Tillich. He says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. So when these doubts, when these questions arise, really use them to fuel your inner investigation. You know, keep using your practice as a laboratory to test out, you know, what what's works, what works for you in your own body, in your own practice, not based on what someone else says to you. Really test it for yourself and inquire. Here's another quote, Zen quote from um, Sensei Sivan Ross. He says, Great faith and great doubt are two ends of a spiritual walking stick. We grip one end, we poke into the underbrush in the dark on our spiritual journey. This act is real spiritual practice, gripping the faith end and poking ahead with the doubt end of the stick. So really use that doubt to fuel you. A useful tip with working with doubt is not, the time to question isn't right at the beginning, right when you're sitting down to your practice and then, should I really do this? You know, maybe I should actually, you know, go have a latte instead. You know, do the questioning, you know, do your practice and then judge at the end of the practice. And then afterwards, if you're making the decision, all right, this isn't the practice for me, uh, you can make that decision. But really see through whichever piece you're on. So, you know, we really encourage, when you're on a retreat, I've heard teachers say, you know, let doubt arise, but set it aside to the end of the retreat and then evaluate. Is this my practice? Is this my path? So that you're not constantly second-guessing yourself. Commit a little piece at a time. You know, I'll do it just for this day. Then I'll see. Then I'll investigate. Then I'll question. What's it doing for my heart? What's it doing in my mind? Another useful tip in the yoga practice in particular is if you're feeling this doubt, remind yourself what drew you to the practice to begin with. And then look at the toolkit, all the different things you have available, and say, what is one, if you're, just, if you're at this point where I just can't even get on the mat, it's like, is there one practice I can do? Is there one practice that I can commit myself to? Can I lie down in a restorative pose for 10 minutes? And then see what happens next. Give yourself something that's easy for you to do, to kind of get you started. That's often my way in my morning practice. I wake up and think, well, what's calling me in? And then just take the next step and the next step. Anna and I co-teach on a creativity retreat, and there's a wonderful painter um, who teaches on the retreat. Uh, Barbara, I'm suddenly blanking her last name. Kaufman, Barbara Kaufman. And uh, Barbara says when you're painting, she says, just keep doing the next easy thing. That was just really radical for me. You know, I always think, find the next really, really hard and difficult thing and then make yourself do it. No, let's do the next, next easy thing. She says, go from one easy thing to the next. 
just progressing that way. So if you're feeling doubt, just find that next step that you can take and the next and the next and the path will continue to unfold. And the gift that can arise out of this doubt is um, wisdom, you know, from that kind of investigation. Discriminating wisdom can start to occur. What's, what's really useful? What's really helpful? You know, ultimately what we're looking for in all of these practices is not some kind of perfection or, you know, it's not like we're trying to get ourselves reborn as some new, improved, more spiritual version of ourself. We are looking for what makes us more fully human, what makes us more fully present and alive and connected to just the ordinary moments of our day. And by using these tools from the yogic toolbox, the asana, pranayama, energy practices, in conjunction with these powerful practices of mindfulness, of insight, we can really bring ourselves more alive in that way, just to the ordinary moments of our life. So I'm going to conclude with a poem. This is from a... Christian mystic named John Donahue, and the poem is called The Inner History of a Day. We seldom notice how each day is a holy place where the Eucharist of the ordinary happens, transforming our broken fragments into an eternal continuity that keeps us. Somewhere in us a dignity presides that is more gracious than the smallness that fuels us with fear and force, a dignity that trusts the form a day takes. So at the end of this day, we give thanks for being betrothed to the unknown and for the secret work through which the mind of the day and the wisdom of the soul become one. Let's just sit for a moment. So we'll be back here in uh, about 35 minutes for sitting meditation and chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.